You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. It's great to see you guys. So I have a tension with uh, Christmas music because I'm a fairly staunch not till the weekend after Thanksgiving. Anyone else in here? Yeah. My kids are wearing me down really big time, like a start. But the thing is, if you listen to the lyrics, Christmas music is so rich. It's some of the most beautifully written worship music of all time. Um, so at some level, I'm like, ah, I should, if I'm a good Christian, I should probably listen to it all year round. Anyone like that? Okay, all right, yeah, there you go. You're the, you're the best of us, yeah. I'll stick to my tradition, maybe. Um, good to see you guys. So yeah, today's exciting. We're starting a, a, just a four-week kind of Advent series uh, just for our little church and we kind of came up with this idea, so uh, Jesse and, and Randall actually uh, worked through um, uh, the Candlelight series going off of the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which again is just so rich in lyrics um, and musically. Um, but that idea of Emmanuel started to spark in me. What is, what is Emmanuel? And, and we know Emmanuel in, in the Old Testament, if you've ever seen it, it's actually with an I. Uh, that's the translation from the, from the Hebrew um, and the Aramaic, and then the New Testament, it was with an E, Emmanuel. They both mean the same thing. It's just the translation, uh, but God with us. So the fascinating thing is just what, it started to, to spark in me, what does God with us mean? What does it mean to us right now? What does God with us mean? What does God with us, what did that mean to people of the past, right? We're not the first church ever, so what has it meant for a long time now? And then what, I, what, what ultimately sparked into this series, what, what does Emmanuel, God with us, mean, or what did it mean to the people in the Christmas story? The people to where God with us, Emmanuel, was actually prophesied and actually happened. So we're going to look at the classic Christmas story in Luke 1, um, and, but we're going to take the characters that Emmanuel actually happened to and kind of see what did it mean to them so we can learn from these Bible characters um, and, and move on. So let me pray because the first we're going to get into and the first uh, characters are not actually Mary and Joseph, but these two really interesting characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth. So let me pray and let's dive into their story this morning. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to just take a big breath and be in your presence, God. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for these stories uh, that are so real uh, that we can read and we can kind of reimagine and put ourselves in um, and just pray that beyond anything I say or we sing today, God, that you speak to our hearts today of, of your love and what you want for us as your people. We love you and pray in your name. Amen. All right, so let's get into it. So chapter 1, verse 5, begins, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Okay, stop. <laughs> First of all, there's a lot of significance here. Uh, Luke is kind of giving us a time frame. Okay, he's saying, okay, this is about when you need to be knowing when this is happening. Okay, in the days of Herod. There's a lot we can learn here. I kind of wrote a quick little bullet list that will help us in the scope of it. Remember, Judea is Rome ruled. Okay, so Rome is allowing the Jews to be there to kind of have their own religion, have their own way of life as long as they pay taxes, they obey their laws, and so forth. And this was Herod the Great. 
okay, the father of the Herod who would preside over Jesus's crucifixion, but not the same Herod. So this is Herod the Great, um, and Herod the Great was an, is an interesting guy. Go home, do a deep dive on him. It's really fascinating. But he was actually um, of Jewish heritage, and he was kind of made king of the Jews by Rome. Rome elevated him and gave him the status of king of the Jews so that he could continue to influence, build, and kind of see uh, in Judea uh, or as it is in Rome, to use that language, right? They wanted Rome to kind of influence here. So a very polarizing character to some, a savior, to some, an absolute tyrant. And this is what's kind of going on in the culture of Judea, okay? So what about the temple worship? Who was keeping the people in line with worship of God, right? Next verse. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So in this era of temple worship, there were 24 divisions of priests, and there was this rotation of priestly leaders who would come in to lead the temple worship. And they would be for, they'd come into Jerusalem for about a week or so, so they didn't live in Jerusalem so often. They'd know their rotation, they'd come in from where they live and lead there, and then they'd go back home afterward. So this was Zechariah's turn to answer the call to worship. And his wife is of special import, right? A daughter of Aaron, right? If this connection didn't already give him some props, Luke goes on to describe them as righteous before God, walking blameless before the Lord. This is a spiritual power couple for sure. But there was one major issue, verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So unfortunately, it was believed to be part of God's blessing you to have children. So if that was not the case, that there was this belief that there was something wrong with you, that there was either a curse on you or something in your life that was lacking this faith. But we were just told in the text that they were righteous, blameless, right? Nothing could be blamed on them. So Luke is kind of, he's definitely given us some Abraham and Sarah vibes, right? Now, verse 8, now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So this was Zechariah's turn to serve as priest. And beyond the honor of ushering God's people into worship, there was this rare opportunity chosen at, by Lot where priests got to go deeper into the temple, right? Deeper in a place that's not common for the common priest. And they get to go in, they get to burn the incense at the altar. And the people would wait outside and they'd wait for this great honor. And often because there's 24 uh, priestly um, divisions and there was, they only got this once in a while, this was usually a once in a lifetime opportunity. So for Zechariah, this was huge. Not only was he going to serve, but this was a massive, cool thing for him and really awestruck. So Zechariah is chosen. He enters into the temple. Everyone is waiting outside, waiting and praying. And even though this is like routine temple worship in Jerusalem, there's always a little bit of a hope and a prayer that this would be the day, that there would be a mighty word from the Lord, right? The people still desired salvation, whether it was they thought it was salvation from Rome. They thought it was salvation from whatever ails them, if there was physical or body harm or whatever. 
um, or so their circumstances. Like salvation could mean different things to different people. So people are all waiting outside. And they're wanting to know. But we kind of get the inside scoop, okay, the camera in our 21st century, you know, ideas. It zooms into the temple, right? So verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Can you imagine the scene, right? As a priest, you have to know that once in your lifetime, you would go in and the in, at the incense altar, it's already a big deal. But then when you do, and you, you have all these imaginings of what's going to happen, what's it going to be like, and then you actually show up and an angel is right there. I think fear and trembling is, is warranted. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to, their, uh, Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Can you imagine? Like Zechariah goes in and he just gets hit with this. I would think that, that maybe like they would have thought that like, okay, an angel usually probably shows up to this kind of thing and like presides over the, the burning of the incense and is like, well done, good and faithful servant or whatever, right? But this was specific to him, right? It wasn't, this angel wasn't here just to make sure Zechariah did a good job. He was here to give Zechariah a word from the Lord that his prayers had been heard. We weren't told that this has been a particular prayer, for Zechariah, but the implication here is that Zechariah has been praying this often and fervently for this reality, trying to trust God and walk in his ways. But now he hears Elizabeth will bear him a son, John, and this child will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the angel, you notice this, says a special phrase, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is just straight out of a prophecy 400 years earlier in the book, you can read in the book of Malachi, right before this long period of silence, waiting for a word from the Lord. This is Malachi uh, chapter 4, verse 5. So one day, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this to Zechariah is a little bit less intense <laughs> than Malachi, right? But they've been waiting for this prophecy. They knew, they know this. They're like, when is, what is this going to be? Is this Elijah back from the dead? What's going to happen? This the spirit of Elijah will be upon your boy, John. So I imagine all this is so much, right? And Zechariah, probably a little bit flustered, just, just bursts out, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Again, almost the same response in the Abraham and Sarah story all those years ago. And the angel answered him, 
I am Gabriel, (laughs) which I love it. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So powerful. Angel is literally from the Greek word meaning messenger. Okay, this was a messenger of good news from the presence of God. This is what the people have been longing for for so long, hundreds of years. That prophecy in Malachi was some 400 years before this time. They've been waiting for this. The people need to hear this. It's finally happening. And Zechariah could be the one to give the word. Verse 20, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The encouragement I get is Zechariah is described as being righteous before God and blameless, and he's still messed up. <laughs> there's, there's hope for me, right? Zechariah, probably in a moment of true, honest disbelief, kind of showed this little level of doubt, like how could this happen? But we know God's word is fulfilled in God's time. Now, why silence, right? This is a word from the presence of God. This needs to be told to the people, right? Zechariah entered the temple out of his duty, of his priestly lineage, and his lot came up, and he was to burn the incense that year. But now he was was not going to walk out and tell the people because of his continued duty. He was going to walk out as a living symbol of what happened to him a symbol that this was not his doing, that this was not because of his own righteousness or the fact that he's blameless, walk with the Lord. Zechariah was not the messenger of God's word here. Gabriel was. And this begs the question, was Zechariah not expecting a word from the Lord? When, when we even go to worship, are we not expecting a powerful move of God? Right? The, the priestly duties were so second nature to someone like Zechariah, just like we can program anything today. But it's the same God who can bring his word at any time in any place. Right? There should be an eager expectation that God's doing something so that when it is revealed, it's not a surprise to his people, but it's a worship moment. But for Zechariah, he was in there for a long time. Right? I can imagine the process he's going through. It was a huge experience, a crazy experience, and now he can't even talk about it. What are people, what, how am I going to tell people what's going to happen, right? And remember, who's waiting for Zechariah? Like, all the people are just waiting in anticipation afterward. So verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. The people were burning for a a word from the Lord. And what's worse than not hearing one? Knowing that there is one, but you can't know what it is, right? How frustrating. Can you imagine the questions? Well, what happened? Why can't he talk? Is God pleased with us? Is God angry with us? What's going to happen now? And what's even worse is Zechariah, he can't even officially tell his wife. He can try, right? But he also now has some motivation for some canoodling, 
That's what I like to say in a family-friendly environment, right? I'm not sure if the art of silent seduction uh, works for every couple, but I can imagine the creative you know, signs that he has to make to, to, for his intentions, to be clear. But it worked. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, just to move on, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So again, kind of unfortunately, there was a big stigma with her that she couldn't get pregnant, but the encouragement is she did, and she felt now that that stigma was taken away from her. Um, something is happening in her, in her body, in her mind, that is allowing her to worship God in this moment, which is amazing that she was able to conceive. And now in Luke chapter 1, if you're following along, it gets to now the beginning of the story of Mary and Joseph. But we're going to continue with, uh, Steve is actually going to walk us through Mary and Joseph next week. But we're going to continue with Zechariah and Elizabeth. So skip to verse 57 and we'll continue the story. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. So there's two implications here. First is that Zechariah has been silenced now for nine-ish months. It's a long time. It's a really long time. And two, this may be the first that their community has even heard that they bore a son. So they rejoiced with her. Verse 59, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. So this is really important. We're not, we're not told how Zechariah was able to communicate with his wife, but she knew and believed that this was to be his name, John. Even though this was not normal, this is probably the most important sign that something was up here. Names were so important. They're important today, right? But especially first century. Especially first century. Names were your legacy. The natural way for their son was to be raised as Zechariah Jr., whatever, as a priest carrying on the family name. And no wonder they react this way, verse 61. And they said to her, no, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. They don't, they don't believe Elizabeth. Like, okay, Lizzie's kidding around. <laughs> Zeke, what are we going to do, buddy? And they go to Zechariah, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. Like this was Zechariah's moment to believe wholeheartedly. He's had nine months and eight days to think about his quick response of doubt in that temple room. He's been given the gift of processing. He was not about to do the same thing here. And when he wrote down John and truly said, no, this is what was shown to me. This is what it's going to be. Verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. Can you imagine this? Like, not only was the boy's name shocking, but then all of a sudden, Zechariah just starts speaking and blessing God. Like, this would have been such a moment, and a worship moment. And it goes on to say, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? for the hand of the Lord was with him. And you'll see this phrase, laid up in their hearts, 
often in the Christmas story, it can be kind of translated, kept on their minds. They couldn't stop thinking about it. It was just on their minds constantly. What happened here was talked about, thought about, put on the hearts and minds of all those who encountered and heard about it. And the coolest thing, in my opinion, is thinking about the spreading of this word. It wasn't because right out of the temple, Zechariah came out and just started prophesying and just preaching this incredible message, right? He couldn't. He couldn't speak. So it was the work of God through Zechariah's silence, a silent obedience that spoke the loudest. Zechariah literally could not spread the good news of his son, but the word still spread, and arguably in an even more powerful way. It blows my mind to think like nine months ago, Zechariah was given a great ministry and honor to enter the temple, to offer the sacrament, but he walked out of the uh, temple unable to lead the people in worship. See, worship was not in the importance of the role or the action of the sacrament. He probably thought his worship days were over. What good is a priest who can't speak to the people? And yet look how God used his life to be the message from Gabriel. So it's here, not to see something fulfilled, but to glorify God in his sovereign timing and fulfillment that Zechariah finally gets to truly lead the people in worship like he wasn't able to nine months ago. And we have this thing called Zechariah's prophecy. Verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then he gives a special blessing specifically to his son John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then the passage ends, and the child being John grew and became strong in spirit And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Wow. Like, this is the start of the Christmas story. That's that's different than a manger in an inn, right? The application here, thinking through, what does Emmanuel mean to Zechariah and Elizabeth here? If you go back to that prophecy, look at the things. I kind of highlighted a few. Maybe you picked out a few more. These are the ones I highlighted. Just from this interaction, he has visited and redeemed his people. That's huge. He's raised up a horn of salvation. That's the power. That's an that's a ancient way of saying the power of salvation. That we would be saved from our enemies. That we would be shown the promised 
mercy that we are God's people, to remember the covenant with Father Abraham, that we might serve him without fear, and for them, very practically, that they had a part to play. Their son, John, would prepare the way of the Lord. What does Emmanuel mean to Zechariah and Elizabeth? So much, so much. Zechariah and Elizabeth has had a roller coaster of emotions leading to the understanding of their role in the Lord's coming. And it's like that often, isn't it? Right? Not being able to see the big picture or the hope of what's going to happen, especially when what is happening is not always pleasant. Do you think Zechariah liked being silent for nine years? Elizabeth might have liked it, but Zechariah probably did not like it, right? But what they went through should be an encouragement and a warning. The encouragement is that God's timing is good. You can trust in Him and not be frustrated when it feels like prayers aren't answered or when something we want changed or fixed isn't yet. Right? We should not stop seeking God and interceding in prayer, but we can also trust God in His timing, knowing that He can give His word anytime and anywhere. And that brings us to the warning. Just like Zechariah, who loved the Lord, followed in His ways, was caught quite off guard in that altar room. We can get lost in the ways we follow God without being expectant. Right? I've been told before by a, by a trusted friend and it's fair that this vision of Jesus Restore Albany is, is amazing and is great. And sometimes it feels like a hopeful prayer for us. You know, sometimes it's like, well, God, that would be really cool, you know, if, if you got time, but you're busy, <laughs> you know. But if we expect this to happen right now, does anything change in us? Like this, if this was our expectation, right? The real question is, are we, are we waiting for a word from the Lord before we believe this is happening, right? Are we even ready for a word from the Lord, right? When we hear a word, do we, would we ask the same questions? Well, God, well, how do we know you're going to do this? What, what are we to do? Like, what's my role in this? How can this be? You know, remember in the story, silence was how God spoke the loudest in his message. Maybe as a people, if our, if our truly our prayers for Jesus to restore Albany, then we shouldn't wonder at how or if God's going to do it, but rather present ourselves in faithful obedience to live in the reality that that is what God is doing here. God is restoring Albany, right? He is restoring you and me. We are saying we surrender to what you are doing here, and we desperately want to be a part of it. We're in our own waiting for eternity to be fully realized, but our waiting is not purposeless, right? Our waiting now is for the purpose of sanctification, of growing, of being made new, and then for that newness to then be a part of God's mission here on earth, redemption and drawing people to himself. We know Jesus has started a good work in us, right? And the scriptures say that he will see it to completion. That is what's happening right now, right? What happened to Zechariah in his silence was necessary for his heart, right? And necessary for those around him. What is happening with you right now in your waiting that is necessary for your heart? And often it's unpleasant. Often it's something that you might not want to be happening. Not sin, 
but just something that is a good heart, right? Often when we are waiting, it's not just our hearts that are being moved, but God is doing bigger work amongst his people and his church that we don't always see. Like at, at Hub City, we believe that we don't just live in a vacuum of our own personal faith. We're part of a body, right? A people of God who make up God's church together. Just like the move he was doing in Zechariah and Elizabeth was for the work of faith and provision in their hearts and lives, it was always a much bigger movement in the narrative of God's story with his people that they got a privilege of being a part of. Like their faithfulness to God in their lives and the waiting was used as a blessing in the bigger story of what God was doing around them. The works of God are big and important in our lives. We're also invited to have eager expectation that God is doing something in the greater body of the church and in the city and in the people, his people in the world. Are we in anticipation of that? Does that get us going? Right? We're, we're a small part of something huge that's happening. Are we eagerly awaiting and desiring to participate in how God is moving in both our hearts and in his people? In Hub City, our prayer is that in our waiting for God to make all things new completely, that we are growing in expectation that that has begun and that is happening here and now, and we can live in that reality. So when we respond today, we get to respond to a God who is very much alive and active in the world. And you know how we do it. We can respond in just singing so loudly the praises to our God. It's in prayer of thanksgiving to what God has given us, who God is, interceding for our, our family, our friends, our coworkers, our city, people here that we know as we get to know each other, what's going on in our lives. We get to intercede for each other. Right, we get to give so that we, this place can be such full of generosity to then give away, to bless our community. And then we get to receive communion. Sheena, thank you, has prepared communion for us. And when we go to the table, we remember God's incredible gift of grace to us. Where his son on the cross said, this is my body and this is my blood. That when you gather, remember Remember the grace that I showed you. Remember that I gave you the opportunity to be made new, that I loved you, and I want you in my family, and I'm doing a new thing on earth.